You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. And I don't know what the desserts are like in California, but I tell you, here, when it gets to kind of like, like, February on a Sunday and you've got people coming for lunch and it's so dreary you want a steamed marmalade pudding believe me that was Diana Henry a British award-winning food writer and cookbook author her latest work is simple effortless food big flavors Henry thinks that home cooks should throw off the yoke of culinary history and start thinking for themselves 
That means new flavors, new textures, and of course, a new way to cook. But first, it's time to check in with J.M. Hirsch at Milk Street about this week's recipe. J.M., how are you? All right, how are you doing? So uh, you got back from Mexico not too long ago. You spent a couple days with Dana Kennedy. Yes, I did. The famous and uh, august Mexican <laughs> cooking expert. And oddly enough, you started with guacamole. We did. You know, I, I wanted her to teach me just, you know, something, a core Mexican recipe, something that Americans could really get behind. We all love guacamole. And she really surprised me with where she took us because she had some steadfast rules about how you make guacamole, and she wasn't willing to tolerate any variances from that. So we learned a couple of things. The first is that the seasonings only come from three things, serrano chilies, white onion, and cilantro. There's no lime juice no garlic, and certainly no kale and no peas. Well, I understand the no kale and no peas, but lime <laughs> juice and garlic seem to be ubiquitous ingredients in American guacamole. Yeah, you know, and what she explained was that the garlic tends to overpower the kind of the gentler flavor of the avocado. And you really don't want to compete with that because that's the key ingredient. And as for the lime juice, that gets us into the acid discussion. Now, she's all about the acid. You want to balance out that fattiness of the avocado. Thing is, in a true central Mexican guacamole, you get that acid from fresh tomatoes, hmm. not from the lime juice, which again, like the garlic is kind of too powerful for the avocados. So we use fresh tomatoes. Now in Mexico, you can get great fresh tomatoes any time of the year. We experimented with a lot of tomatoes here and we found that grape tomatoes gave us that best year-round flavor for some acidity and that fresh flavor. But in late summer, if you had good um, you regular beefsteak tomatoes, that would work. Go for it, absolutely. The other rule she talked about is you know, do not mince or mash anything on the cutting board. Because when you do that, you're leaving all the flavor on hmm. the cutting board. You only chop things, and then you get them into the bowl, and then you start mashing them. Of course, she uses uh, a molcajete, kind of a, a Mexican-style mortar and pestle. But we just use a bowl and the bottom of a dry measuring cup. and just mash it into a paste, then you mix that paste into the avocados and you get that flavor permeating instead of leaving it behind. Her final rule, which again she is quite adamant about, do not seed your serrano chilies. The seeds carry of course the heat but also a lot of flavor and that's key to balancing out again the heavier avocados. Now you know a lot of people worry about too much heat, too much spice, but Diana is not a big fan of too much heat, and you know she thinks that there's a lot of bravado in American-style guacamoles where you got to crank up the heat. She doesn't like that because it kind of ruins the overall flavor. So it's a very moderate heat that she goes for. So you could call this segment Diana Rules. And I am going to follow them. And her rules for authentic central Mexico guacamole are no lime juice and no garlic and use tomatoes to provide a little bit of acidity. J.M., thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, which is MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and of course at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, you ready? I am ready. Hello, who's calling and how can we help you? Hi, my name's Ellen Jansen. I'm calling from Santa Fe. I'm a cookie baker at Christmas time. And last year when I baked all my Christmas cookies, which was my first year in Santa Fe at 7,000 foot elevation, everything turned out great visually, tasted great, but everything was crisp. There was no chewiness to any of my cookies, and my cookies are normally chewy. I didn't change anything in the recipe, so I'm wondering if there are any secret things I can do to make my cookies chewy again. I'd add more liquid to the batter. Yeah, at high elevation, liquids evaporate faster. So what do you think, about one to two tablespoon? If the liquid is only butter or eggs, what would I add more of? I'd add, definitely add more butter. More butter? Absolutely. Well, I tried adding more brown sugar because I felt that had more moisture than the white. In a recipe that had both, I would add more, and I would take them out of the oven sooner. Yes. But they still, when they cool down, they got still more crisp. So I just should add more butter. Oil, actually, will give you a chewier cookie. Yeah. So you, you might substitute some of the butter with oil. Okay, like 50-50. Yeah, that's a good idea. G yeah. Give that a shot. Okay, I'll try that. A little bit less flavor, but it, it might be more tender. Yeah, okay. And you said they're totally drying out, or are they cooked all the way through or not so much? Oh, no, they're cooked all the way through. They're not really dried out. They taste really good. It's just that they're crisp. You know, when you bite them, they go crunch. Is this baking powder or baking soda, or what are you using in the recipe? 
Well, I have like about 15 or 20 different recipes I make, and I think there's probably a mix of them. Uh, Brown sugar, she has to have the baking soda. Right, but I would reduce the leavener because at high altitude you need less leavener. So I reduce the leavener by a third or so. And baking soda also makes cookies browner and crisper, by the way. So okay. So I'd reduce your leavener. Mix the soda. If you have brown sugar, you, need you will soda. need the soda. Because okay. there's acid in right. brown sugar. Brown right. sugar is white sugar with molasses in it, and molasses right. is acid. Sure. Right. So cut down on the soda, increase the brown sugar possibly, and take the fat, half oil or half margarine or something other than butter. And just add a little bit more fat. Sure. I should do it. Okay. And underbake is the right thing also, to do. Also, you know what I wanted to mention, this wonderful book, written by Susan Purdy, P-U-R-D-Y, called Pie in the Sky. The subtitle is Successful Baking at High Altitudes. 100 cakes, pies, cookies, breads, and pastries, home-tested for baking at sea level, 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, and 10,000 feet, and anywhere in between. So you'll make a recipe, and they'll say, for the altitude you're at, here's how you adjust it. So it would even fine-tune what we just discussed. Pie in the Sky by Susan Purdy. Perfect. I will get that book. Thanks for calling. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello. Who do we have calling, and how can we help you? I'm Tina, and I'm from Wisconsin. And, uh, of course, in Wisconsin, everything is Packers, green and gold, including my egg yolks when I try to make hard-boiled eggs. Help me with my timing, please. Well, I have a recipe. You put them in cold water, bring them to a boil, simmer, then take them off and let them sit 10 minutes. That's what Julia used yeah. to do. Yeah. I've got a new one that I like even better that I want to share, which is you put one of those fold-out steamers, it could be any steamer, into your pot, sure. and you put the water just underneath the bottom of the steamer so it doesn't come above it. And you bring that up with a lid to a full boil. Then you turn it down to a medium boil, take off the lid carefully, put in the eggs. You can use a slotted spoon or any spoon, you know, if you don't want your hands to get in there and get hurt. And then mm-hmm. put the lid on, continue steaming them at medium medium boil, so medium heat, for 10 to 12 minutes. Or I'm going to say 12 minutes because then the yolk is mostly cooked. And then you take them out and throw them into ice water and let them cool completely. The reason I like this method a lot is threefold. First of all, uh, steaming, for some reason, is gentler than even the method you just mentioned. The one that Chris mentioned is the one I was using for years because the whites came out so much more tender than when you boil an egg. You know, protein does not Uh like to be boiled. It toughens up. But the thing about this one is the whites are even more tender when you steam them. It apparently is more gentle. But the other thing is that the eggs, even if they're fresh eggs... They peel beautifully. This is the holy grail of the culinary arts is how to get a hard-boiled egg I just, peel. I know. We all really? care so much passionately. But the other very important that. thing is the ice water and cooling them completely before you peel them because that will help you to avoid that green line. I'm going to try that. You've got to. I just made them this I, morning. I get this question like every two minutes. Yeah. And they're room temperature eggs, right? Room temperature eggs? No, they don't have to be because the pan is hot. The water oh, is hot okay. when you put them in there. They don't have to be. Nope. You can take them right from the fridge. I did it this morning. So. Oh, my goodness. We're yeah, going to go works, into Milk I'm Street Kitchen, so... and we'll test this. You'll have to do this. I, I've heard this before. Yeah. Steaming is better yeah. for peeling. Steaming is better for peeling, but it's also you get a more tender okay. white. All right. Yeah. I've learned a lot today. I thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a real treat. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call. That's one eight five five four bowtie one eight five five four bowtie or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. My name is Jimmy Bailey. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Where are you calling from? Atlanta, Georgia. How can we help you? Something that's been bothering me for quite a while, most of my culinary career, is that there isn't, and nor have I ever been able to find any kind of standard measurement for garlic beyond a clove. I've developed my own system trying to measure it out and so forth, but given how strong garlic can be and how much it can add to a dish, I find it odd that there's never any kind of standard measurement. So I was wondering if there exists one or what your thoughts might be on, on how to identify the right amount of garlic when you're working with just a recipe that calls for a clove. When it comes to garlic, I'm highly opinionated. First of all, the problem is one clove of garlic, as you said, to another is a different volume, mm-hmm. but it's also yeah. could be stronger. Not all garlic is created equal, like elephant garlic, for example, yeah. or even one head of garlic you buy one week might be different than the one next week. I strongly suggest you use garlic the way Italians do, which is to use a clove, maybe lightly crush it, 
and use the whole clove in the recipe just to give a mild garlic flavor. Occasionally, you want to grate it or mince it, but I find that way you get a much more subtle flavor and the amount of garlic is less important. If you mince it or grate it, you really create that strong garlic flavor because the yeah. cell structures is being broken down. I strongly suggest using whole cloves, maybe smashed a little bit. and That way, the amount of garlic is less important. What I do is I'd say for a clove of garlic, it's a teaspoon of minced. That's my point of reference. And I've stopped saying a clove of garlic. I always say a teaspoon of minced if I want just one clove. But in terms of what Chris just said, I think it's wonderful to smash garlic and, you know, just give it the subtle, you know, flavor. What I usually do is start garlic in cold oil. You know, much like you start uh, a stock with cold bones. I like mincing it because I like more garlic flavor. If you cook it Mm -hmm. low and slow, it does mellow. It really does mellow. What really affects garlic is how old it is. And you can tell when you're chopping it, too, whether it's older because it's sort of dried out. So so then you might want to use less. And I, I rarely use it raw. Because, you know, it's just overwhelming. Yeah. any rate, okay, there we go. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Diana Henry. She's author of the new cookbook, Simple. The question is, can you cook simply and well? Henry says, yes, we can. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moesalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to talk to Diana Henry. Born in Northern Ireland, she's a British broadcaster, a journalist, and also author of 10 cookbooks, most recently Simple, Effortless Food, Big Flavors. She claims to offer a vision of simplicity of preparation, married to complexity of flavor, which, of course, is the holy grail of cooking. First of all, let me start by saying that your latest book, Simple, is it's in my top two. Or maybe it's just my top one. It's really... That's, that's big. That's high. Yeah. <laughs> and and now, now you just have to like me, right, <laughs> after I said that. I just want to know what the other one is, though, Christopher. <laughs> maybe it's your last book. I don't know. It's... um, Well... It's very hard, I know, because we're both in the same business, to do recipes that are kind of simple, they're interesting, they're approachable, they have bold flavors. I mean, it, it's the balance is right here. So I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Um, let me give you a couple of quotes from yourself. Uh, quote, there are some people who chase an idea rather than a dish, and I don't think that usually works. What does that mean? Um, I think, I don't know what it's like everywhere there, but certainly in London where I live, there's a great tendency to think about food as something that has to be interesting, in inverted commas. So they'll try to put things together that don't necessarily work because it's a talking point or it looks like you're doing something a bit different. When in fact, I always come to a dish from the point of view of just flavor and greed, something you want to eat. And I don't I mean, you do approach food with your your head, obviously, but I think you should really approach it with your palate. I think it's one of the effects that the Nordic, and I really like what the new Nordic cuisine has done in many ways and that we're really focusing on northern ingredients and giving them the respect they deserve. But I think it's made us think about food sometimes that is good, interesting for your head, not necessarily delicious to eat. So that's what I mean when I say that. I do think you should chase an idea that's interesting. I think you should think about what something is like in your mouth. 
I love this quote. Uh, you see, I couldn't stir a risotto for 25 minutes with a baby on my hip. So when you had your first child, I guess you changed your mind about what constituted uh, the type of cooking you were going to do. Well, I thought really naively when I was pregnant that I was going to become really homely and I was going to make pies and braises. And I also thought rather ridiculously I was going to learn Italian and write a novel. And then I discovered that basically if you have a shower by 11 in the morning, you're doing well. Um, so my cooking really did have to change because I started, he wouldn't stop crying. So I had to carry him around everywhere. And things that took a lot of chopping, like stir fries, that's what we consider to be quick food. But it wasn't possible for me, really. And risottos, it was just it was just too hands-on. So what I started to do was make a lot of dishes that I could spend about 10 minutes at the countertop, and then I'd stick things in the oven. And I still think we don't use our ovens enough. I think people think of ovens as something you use for, you know, roasts on a Sunday, kind of like big meat dishes. But I think it's very good if you let the oven do the work. I'm a big believer in that. Heat is just miraculous, as you know, of course, because you're a cook. But it's astonishing the things you can put in without even having browned them into the oven. And as long as you, you can have your vegetables around your chicken joints and as long as you keep everything in a single layer so that they don't sweat, so that they roast instead, you'll put that dish in. 45 minutes later, you bring it out. It is totally transformed. And you've done very little. All you've had is a kind of an idea. And, you know, you can do something as simple there as just put in chicken thighs with little waxy potatoes and red onions, some whole garlic cloves that you haven't peeled, olive oil, a little bit of balsamic, and that 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 just changes in the in the time that it's in the oven and you haven't had to do anything. And I love those dishes, partly because, and I'll bring those to the table sometimes and people will say, oh, that's fantastic. And I'll say, yes, isn't it? <laughs> Could you just talk uh, a little bit about how other cultures use eggs? I particularly like the way they use them in India, so you'll kind of just have curried vegetables and then they might put an egg on the top or they will put hard-boiled eggs actually into a curry. And um, there are just lots of ways that you can scramble eggs, adding some spices, some coriander, some chili. And I've got quite a lot of Indian friends who are really good cooks and there are lots of variations on the kind of Indian scrambled eggs theme. Persia as well, they have this thing called cuckoo, which is kind of like sort of a baked omelette and they'll put lots of different fillings in that and of course Italians have frittata. The cuckoo has four or five cups of herbs which I love with the eggs so it it comes out green and and very fresh. Yes. Um, Let's talk about dressings. You know, uh, growing up it was always the French vinaigrette and everyone argued about whether it was three parts oil to one part vinegar or four parts oil. But it seemed to me it's such a limited concept. And everywhere else in the world, the idea of a dressing is just, you know, they just blow it up and they do all sorts of things. What are a couple of dressings, sort of all-purpose dressings, you might use on vegetables or meats or other things? Um, I do use miso ones quite often nowadays. I just started cooking with miso a couple of years ago and I like either the sweet white one mm-hmm. or the kind of the darker ones which are quite beefy. So if you use a groundnut oil and you mix that with either the the dark or the light depending on what you're going to put it with because I like contrast in food. Um, and then some ginger, a little bit of brown sugar maybe, garlic, chili, soy sauce perhaps, again, depending on what you're going to use it with. Um, I also really love a buttermilk dressing. I do that a lot now. It's funny because I grew up with buttermilk, but I use that a lot now. Sometimes just mixed with chopped dill and sometimes a little garlic, but mm. sometimes just with the dill and seasoning. Sometimes I put a tiny bit of olive oil in it. Sometimes I'll use a pinch of sugar, again, depending on what it's going to go on. We're talking about contrast again, and what it does give you is a bit of kind of acidity, but that's quite light and that's not as thick as yogurt. So I think that it's a, it's a really good dressing, I think, or a good dressing basis. So w- one of the things you have to worry about as a cookbook author is what ingredients are beyond the pale and that that line moves every year this comes up all the time so sumac shaoxing wine spelt you know fresh turmeric are are there certain ingredients you think that a couple years from now people will be ready for but just not yet what we cook with now certainly in the united kingdom has changed a lot in the last 10 years then pomegranate molasses you had to find a middle eastern store to get it now you can get it in the supermarket the same with sumac um 
Barberries now are becoming really quite easy to find. Miso. I mean, turmeric root is still difficult. I think in another kind of couple of years, that will become normal as well. I mean, we have always had a very sort of magpie culture in the United Kingdom when it comes to picking up unusual things from other countries. And we like it. But I will still always get complaints about the people who won't even go on and kind of like at the click of a button just order something you get anything online um so that kind of annoys me but I do get criticized for that sometimes I tried in this book not to be too outlandish and I also gave lots of places at the back of the book where you could source stuff but you know Part of the joy for me is finding things. And I love it now that it's easy to find things, much, much easier than it was 10 or 15 years ago. What about dessert? I mean, most places in the world, sweets are in the afternoon as a pick-me-up, right? In late afternoon, yeah. you have some mint tea or you have coffee and you have a little piece of cake or pastry. Uh, but but they rarely actually have dessert per se. No, uh, so wh- why do you think that is true in most of the world but not true, uh, let's say, in England or America? Because they have sunshine in those places you've just mentioned, <laughs> and we don't all the time. I mean, I don't know what the desserts are like in California, but I tell you, here, when it gets to kind of like like February on a Sunday and you've got people coming for lunch and it's so dreary, you want a steamed marmalade pudding, mm. believe me. And just this last week, it's for it's for a piece that's going into a magazine in March. I did. This is great. It's a steamed chocolate and prune and Guinness pudding with a Guinness mm. and chocolate sauce. But I know when I serve that this winter that that will be the dish that people kind of talk about for months afterwards. So fast forward 20 years, what is, what is home cooking going to be like, you think, if the trends continue? I worry about it. I worry that it will be... That, it tr- that, that cooking will have become a kind of hobby that people do at weekends and they, don't, they see it as a leisure thing and not as something that's about sustenance and that they will have meals delivered to their home and they will do a kind of like tiny amount of cooking just by putting these meal kits together. I'm very concerned about that, mostly to do with the fact that I think there is a real sensual pleasure in doing even the simplest dish every day. I mean, if you squeeze a lemon, if you cut even a lemon, you can see the the oil coming out of the zest as you do that. Then you squeeze that, you you cut garlic, you chop a chili, you toss spaghetti in olive oil and herbs and you add that to it, or you you soften Um, in your pan you soften a few anchovies until they're completely dissolved all of that gives me huge pleasure and none of these things go into difficult meals and I think to not do that is will not be good for our mental health I think life a good life is about finding pleasure in the simple things and if we don't cook on a daily basis even in the most simple way we'll be losing out terribly but don't you think I, I sense now it's starting to come back. A, lo- a lot of kids in their 20s, I call them kids, <laughs> grew up in households without a parent who cooked. And I, I see a resurgence, actually, of an interest in cooking in the last 10 years now. I think there is. But certainly living in London, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of real hobby thing. And it's a very fashionable thing. And when things are in fashion then eventually they go out of fashion. So I, I worry about that. I mean, it could be bad. It could be great. And, of course, I see myself in the vanguard of fighting for it to be great, which is why I try to offer simple things and inspire people and get them to see that food isn't always just about something to eat. It's about your imagination and right. about memory and about the pleasure you can have every day. Because sometimes people think I'm horrible. I'll invite people to dinner just because I want to cook certain dishes. And frankly, after I've cooked the dishes, sometimes I can't be bothered to be the hostess. I could go upstairs and read a novel. But I have to go on with the whole thing because that's the point. Wait, 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 wait. Me, You've really hit on I like this. This is, you, you could cook the food and then just disappear. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, It's not because I'm shy either. It's just because for me, it is now done. Yeah. It's done. I've had the pleasure. This is it. You've talked a lot about about cooking being transcendent. That is, it's more than just about the food. Is is there a moment, an experience you've had that really opened that door for you where you realized that cooking was a lot more than just uh, preparing food? Oh, yes. I was probably about nine. 
Um, and they had a big party, the first big party I can remember them having. And it was a rainy night in Northern Ireland. But they put um, Frank Sinatra on and Herb Alpert and music mm. like that. I could hear my dad. We had to go We had to go upstairs because, you know, it was for the grown-ups. But me and my siblings, there's four of us, we lay on our tummies looking through the, the on the landing, looking mm-hmm. through the, the staircase to see what was going on downstairs and to listen. And my mum had spent days cooking. The fridge was full of things that we'd never seen before. Honestly, I can't tell you how exotic this was in Northern Ireland. Stuffed olives. And there were flavoured butters. I would say, what's in that butter? So she'd made cayenne butter and parsley Mm. and garlic butter and all sorts of things to melt over meats and to put on warm um, baguette and that kind of thing. But the fridge was full of stuff. But it wasn't just about food. It was honestly, that night, I could have been in Manhattan. I was in Northern Ireland and I just thought, look what food can do. That was Diana Henry, author of 10 cookbooks, including Simple, Effortless Food, Big Flavors. You know, simple is a dangerous word, especially in the kitchen. It can offer the promise of less work. That was the battle cry of the 20th century. Or it can support the notion of the essence of things, natural flavors of food simply combined. And offering both less work and more flavor does sound a bit like Miller Lite. Tastes great, less filling. But cooking is an art, and art discovers truth in simplicity. Think about the great inkwash paintings of the Far East, for example. So maybe, just maybe, we can have it all. That would be bigger flavors, less work. Unless, of course, you actually like to cook, and then cooking is no work at all. Right now, it's time to speak to our regular guest, Dan Pashman of WNYC's The Sporkful podcast about the science of using chips to eat dip. Dan Pashman, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you? It's the new year. Uh, Snacks again? What's on your mind? Well, yeah, I'm looking ahead to the Super Bowl. I'm looking ahead to March Madness. I'm thinking about what I'm going to be eating while I'm watching all of these wonderful events. And I mean, I think, like a lot of people, I'm going to be eating chips and guacamole. Do you ever eat chips and guacamole, Chris? I Actually, I do. I, I admit it. I do that. Well, this is a safe space for you. <laughs> so when you take a classic-shaped triangular tortilla chip and you go to dip it in the guac, do you hold that triangular chip by one point and dip two points, or do you hold a straight edge and dip one point? If you dip one point, the tensile strength of the chip is insufficient to carry the weight of the guacamole. I, I'm answering as if I was you, by the way. You're you're uh, an apt pupil, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if, if you hold one point and dip two, the chip is likely to break. Although, the flip side is you have a bigger dipping surface area, so if you can hold that chip together, holding on to only one point, you're going to get a lot more dip in your mouth. This is one of those trade-off deals? Exactly, like life itself. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you know, I, I never would suggest that you're the kind of person who always has, like, a moral message underneath the snacks, <laughs> but now i figured it out. You do. Yeah, that's right. There's not a whole lot about life you can't learn by talking about chips and guac. It, it covers most of the ground, I admit. So <laughs> what should you do? Well, if you want a lot of dip and you want to reduce the chance of chip breakage, this is what you do. Okay. You, you hold one point and dip two points, but the key is to be very mindful of the angle at which you dip. Oh. The classic mistake people make is that they take the chip and they'll go straight down into the dip, into the, the thick guac, and then they snap the chip back, and then you're putting maximum strain on the chip and it's going to break. Huh. What you've got to do is to instead sweep or snow plow across the top. Oh. You, you want to move the chip in a horizontal motion. Don't go straight down. And that will put much less strain on the chip and allow you to accumulate a lot of dip with much less chance of breakage. So this is like shoveling heavy snow. Same thing. That's right. If, if you're in a foot of snow yeah. up there in Vermont, Chris, you don't stick the shovel straight down. Right. Right. You're never going to be able to lift all that snow. Yeah. See, you you have a moral message, and I have a, a Vermont message. <laughs> so. uh, right. You're good at translating my uh, high-minded morality into practical, useful information. So does d- does this work for all dips or just particularly guacamole because it's particularly dense? Well, I mean, the thicker the dip, the greater the chance of breakage, and right. so this works across dips. But I do have one more technique for you. This is okay. really my money move. You've <laughs> seen the scoop chip? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that, yeah. Okay. Have you tried them? What do you think of them? No, I never tried them. Okay. I I think they're decent. I admire the attempt at innovation. I do get concerned that oftentimes the vertical side edges of the scoop can scratch the roof of your mouth when you put it in. 
Yeah, it's one of those OSHA things. Yeah, yeah. You can get hurt in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah, we actually, on the Sporkful, we call the condition of scratching your mouth on a food condition called Captain Crunch's complaint. <laughs> but my technique is you take that scoop chip and you yeah. flip it upside down and you put it on your fingertip like a thimble. And then it's no longer a scoop. Now it is a dome, which is one of the strongest shapes in all of engineering. Right. The Roman aqueducts are arches, and a dome is a three-dimensional arch. Uh, that's true. And so you take that scoop chip, and you put it on your fingertip like a dome or a thimble, and you can then run that thing oh. through cold cream cheese, and it will not break. Have you ever had a consulting gig for Nabisco? I am waiting for their call, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Call me Nabisco. Hey, the sporkful. <laughs> okay, so uh, a shallow draft when picking up guac, the tortilla chip, and uh, those little scoopable things, uh, just turn it upside down, use it as a thimble, and uh, coat the outside. There you go. You're going to win the Super Bowl even if your team loses. Dan Pashman, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, regular guest on our show and host of WNYC's The Sparkful Podcast. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? I'm Elke. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So can we help you, or how can we help you? Uh, last fall, I got a new stove with gas burners and an electric oven and a baking drawer. And so far, I really loved it until Christmas Eve. And that's a traditional dish that I've prepared any number of times. A lamb in a Dutch oven, and I put it in the oven. First, uh, on a higher temperature at 420 degrees for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then I turn it down to 300, and it can cook for hours. And I added a bottle of red wine and vegetables. And my daughters were in the kitchen and their husbands, and they cooked something on the stove top. And it was about two hours. And all of a sudden, with a very loud bang, the oven door opened <laughs> with a fireball. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, wow. Out, by the way, but it was very scary. Was, uh, yeah. Was the Dutch oven, was it covered or not? It had the lid on, and the lid did not come off, and it had not opened, and there was absolutely no dirt in the oven. It was impeccable. This is a... Heavy- Locked room yeah. mystery. This is. This is a Sherlock Holmes, you know, the, the room was locked from well, the inside. Here's the crazy thing. So there's not a lot of alcohol in wine. But no. let me tell you something that once happened to me. I was making a beef stock. I added some red wine and closed the door to let it continue deglazing and reducing. And same thing, explosion, door opened. And what I realized was the wine had evaporated and gone up to the top of the oven where the electric element is. And when it hit the electric element, that's when we had the explosion. After the holidays, (laughs) we called the technician and he said, well, it's a well-known fact. When you cook lamb in a Dutch oven, in the oven... It explodes. It releases gases. That is the most ridiculous. What is it? That is ridiculous. I mean, come on. (laughs) It's a flatulent (laughs) lamb or something. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Was the lamb alive when you put it in the oven? (laughs) In the Dutch oven? Oh. Assuming there is some logic to this, and it has to do with the wine, those tops are not absolutely Maybe some steam came out of it. I think the the alcohol came out. And I think your point about rising to the top of the and oven. And when it hits the element. And w- when that element turned on yeah. because the temperature controller said the oven's too low, and, it got uh, hot yeah. and then it, it blew. I don't think a Dutch oven is perfectly sealed. That's why sometimes you put foil over it. Yes, exactly And then a right. top. I'm sure that that oh, alcohol okay. could definitely escape. Okay. Yeah. So but, the other thing you said was the oven was okay after that. There was no mess. Uh, the lid was still on. Absolutely clean and it never happened ever since because the next day we roasted a goose in the oven. I think you just write a recipe yeah. called Exploding Dutch Oven Lamb yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and post it on the internet. Next time you might want to use a slow cooker or do it on top of the stove. We have to have a Hall of Fame for calls. Yeah. This isn't the top The five big stump. Ever. Yeah. Well, Elke, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Gina from Chicago. Hi, Gina from Chicago. How can we help you? I am so excited to talk to both of you. I've been watching you for years. We're excited to talk to you, yeah. Gina. We're always enthusiastic <laughs> yes. about a question. So what is the question? I don't think it's too painful. Okay. Um, so it's about ginger. I don't like things that taste too strong of ginger, like ginger chicken. I kind of think it tastes like soap. Isn't um, that interesting? And I love to make quick, like, Asian sautés and stir-fries, but a lot of them call for ginger. I usually just ignore it, but I'm sure it's there for, like, balance. Is there something I should substitute? Well, I mean, I'm not being coy, but, I mean, you could just use less ginger. By the way, our tip is to freeze ginger. It has to be peeled, but freeze it. Mm -hmm. And then it's very, very easy to grate on, like, a microplane. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I just use less. I mean, I don't think it's a problem to use half as much or a quarter as much. Same thing about with chilies, if you don't want as much heat. But Let's think about what ginger brings to a recipe. It brings a certain amount of heat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Spicy heat. But that's not what you object to. No, I love heat. But by eliminating it, though, you're eliminating some of that. You know what she could use is ground ginger. Dried ginger doesn't really have that bite the way fresh do you, ginger How does. do you feel about dried ginger? I use it in baking. 
baking. I like things like gingerbread where it's kind of balanced with a lot huh. more. Well, so use, um, that's a, a thought. Lot of it's a grand ginger. Yeah, yeah, I was going to actually suggest something that's also used a lot in Asian cooking, which is white pepper. White pepper is not as sort of robust as black pepper. It's more of a dry, intense heat. And then maybe a little bit of lemon because it's sort of yeah, citrusy too, ginger. True. Or just use the dry ginger. But the white pepper they use, like in Thailand, it's a stronger... I don't think it's the same thing as the white pepper you get at McCormick's. And a, really? A, yeah, when I used it, to it, work it's more powerful. With Chinese chefs, when I used to have them on my show, they were perfectly happy with the white pepper that we had here. So I don't know, Chris, you may is, be right. I think there's a different type. Yeah. The other but thing anyway. you could do is just put it in boiling water for 10 seconds, right? The yeah. ginger? Yeah, to down uh, its flavor. That'll cool it down. It won't yeah. be quite as biting. Right. And then cool it down. And but it's ahead. not the bite she minds. It's the soapiness. So. Well, then the ground ginger's not soapy. Yeah. How would I convert that? How much ground ginger do? Uh, oh, we thought we were going to yeah. get off the phone before you had to do the conversion <laughs> oh, thing. Now you're really darn. making it hard. Um, I don't know. Let's say. So let's say it's half said, as much. Yeah, well, I'd say start with half as much. Yeah. You know what you can always do is start with even less than that and then build up because it's always hard to take it out rather than to add more. Right. And certainly report okay. back. Let us know how it goes. So I, 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 I have one. the last question. Do we live up to your expectations? <laughs> Because we had really good advanced billing here, but <laughs> yeah. we, what we always try to do is confuse people. If yeah, they don't have right. a really good answer, right. give them four answers. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for your call, and uh, hopefully that was a little bit helpful. It was. Yeah. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call. That's one eight five five four bowtie one eight five five four bowtie or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi. Hi. This is Mary calling from Springtown, Arkansas. How can we help you today? What's your question? Well, um, I have a question about eggplant. I really love to cook eggplant. It's so versatile, great main dish vegetable. But every so often you get one that's just so bitter that it can just ruin a dish. Is there really a way to really miss the bitter ones? The smaller, the better, yes. I think, would be good. Japanese eggplants are much thinner and smaller. I don't think they're as bitter. Mm-hmm. You can slice them and salt them, put them on a baking sheet with paper towels, let it sit 20 minutes or so, and then mm-hmm. I like to press them with more paper towels on top, and that gets some of the liquid mm-hmm. out. I think the salt, for example, if you have a bitter cup of coffee and put a tiny bit of salt in the coffee, you won't taste the bitterness. So I'm not sure the oh. salting removes the bitterness. It, it tamps it down. It, it balances it yeah, out. It so does. you right. won't notice so it as much. So do you think the bitterness is in the peel or it's in the No, no. In the bitterness the is really, vegetable? from what I understand, it's the age of the eggplant. Right. It's the larger it's the, the eggplant, the more uh-huh. the seeds, and also the less fresh. I mean, eggplants... So, so that's why I'm bitter. It's the age of the eggplant. Is oh, that what you're saying? It's less fresh. I don't <laughs> I'm know. I'm less fresh. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm fresh. I'm going to start sprinkling salt <laughs> on you. Yeah. But uh, the fresher you get them, and the smaller, you know, the really larger, older ones are the ones that are more right. bitter. So it's not the skins. I have heard it can be the seeds. The more seeds, the more bitter. Sometimes I've cut open the larger ones, and they'll have actual dark seeds. Yes. Mm-hmm. So let's say you get the uh, Italian ones, the ones that are more bulbous. You right. want to make sure the skin is very uh, smooth and there's mm-hmm. no dents because uh, sort of a wrinkly skin or dents in the eggplant will indicate that it's older. It's just like people. Right. Yeah. Oh, dear. Stop oh, that. Stop hey that. Hey you get wrinkly yeah. and bitter. <laughs> I know. But what I also <laughs> wanted to say is I did um, research about salt and all the things that it does because it does so many things. I found out exactly that. It tamps down bitterness. So when we say tamp down, it what it means is it doesn't take it away. It just means you can taste the other things that are going on, the sweet, oh, the sour, good. Good. all the yeah. other uh, that's what elements salt of taste. Salt is magical. Yeah, salt is yeah. just fantastic. Yeah. I had a wonderful neighbor. She used to say, nature puts the flavor in and salt brings it out. Oh, I like that. I like are, you know, that. Afraid of salt. Did you I, s- I, don't, I like things salt. Sarah, <laughs> Sarah's going to have a T-shirt. Did, did you? Yeah, yeah, wait a minute. I'm going to write that down. That has that ring of truth, doesn't it? Well, it, I think it is true because it's very important. <laughs> and also not to add it at the end for the most part because you'll end up adding uh-huh. more. You've got to add it along the way. Right. At stages during the cooking, I, I really believe that. All so right. Keep them small, salt them. Yes. Keep them small, salt them. Yep. I can remember that. Okay. And fresh, 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 and fresh. fresh. Yep. Cook it the same day you get it. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for Thank calling. You so much. Yeah, pleasure. Bye-bye. Take care. This is Christopher Kimball's Mill Street Radio. 
If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call anytime, 1-855-4-BOWTIE, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. Also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and also on TuneIn, and also at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is, oddly enough, how to fry eggs. And we have a wonderful recipe inspired by Roger Verche. Here's what he does. Four eggs. You heat a 10-inch nonstick skillet over low heat for three minutes. You crack the eggs into a bowl. Add one tablespoon of salted butter to the pan and swirl until melted and it stops foaming. Pour in the eggs and, if necessary, nudge them about so the yolks are evenly spaced. Cook covered for three minutes for set whites and thick but runny yolks. Now, here's the finish. Take the eggs out of the pan, add a quarter cup of high-quality red wine vinegar, reduce by half over high heat, take about two minutes, then drizzle the reduced vinegar over the eggs and serves. It sounds a bit odd, but the vinegar really makes this dish. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk with Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker, about the connection between cooking and madness. Adam, how are you? I am well, Chris. How are you? How have you been spending your philosophical time lately? Well, I've been spending it in a certain amount of sadness and depression of a kind because I've been thinking about the sad truth that the thing we love, Chris, cooking, and particularly one of the things that we both enjoy, which is not just home cooking, but dining out, seems to be an undue source of sadness and depression for the people who are taking part in it. I got turned on not long ago to a remarkable website called chefswithissues.com. Have you spent any time there? Uh, Never heard of it. It's a fascinating thing. It's run by a woman named Kat Kinsman, a chef herself, and it's devoted to her empathetic discovery that enormous numbers, quite possibly the great majority of people who work in the professional food industry, suffer from mental health issues of many kinds, anxiety, depression. The numbers are really quite startling. She put out a 1600 chef survey. Now, it wasn't purely scientific, but nonetheless, it showed 85% of kitchen people suffering from depression, 75% from anxiety, and 50% from substance abuse issues. And now, we're not talking, Chris, here about the lowly kitchen staff. No, we're talking about the glamour pusses. We're talking about the people who get all the credit on food TV, the cooks, the ones who are supposed to be having a good time. And her point is that this business is incredibly painful, exhausting, and almost always leaves anyone who practices it worn out. And of course, you know, anecdotally, I've known that that's true. If I were making light of this subject, I'd have begun it by asking you, Chris, do you think that all cooks are crazy? Because the truth is, having spent many an hour, indeed a big chunk of a lifetime, among cooks, one of the things that's always notable is that they are special people. Now, they're special in a million ways. They tend to be, if you like, a little obsessive-compulsive. You have to be obsessive-compulsive to do that kind of work at all. And they also tend to be hugely driven. They have a very hard time, for the most part, creating successful home lives. The hours of the restaurant business prevent them from doing that. But I wonder if there aren't some deeper affinities, deeper issues involved. You know, it's been one of the kind of subterranean themes of the history of cooking is the history of madness and suicide among the great cooks. Sure, you know the story of Vettel, right? Vettel, of course, was the chef to King of France. And when a fish order came late one day in the 17th century, he took his own life, ran a sword right through himself, rather than fail to serve the right fish to the king. But it's a famous story, and it's one when you're in France, professional cooks will still mentioned to this day. Vettel's suicide has some of the force for them that Nijinsky's madness has for dancers. It's the the fear, the terrible thing that lurks out there for you. Nonetheless, it's certainly true that there's something about the conditions of cooking, something about the pressures it produces, that both attracts driven people, people who have that kind of tendency towards mental illness or mental affliction of one kind or another, and it's true that it seems in itself the kind of metier that produces mental disturbance. You know, in France, if you've ever spent time in a three-star kitchen, you'll know that everybody mutters under their breath, sale metier, sale metier, filthy trade, it's a filthy trade. 
And they mean exactly that the conditions of the kitchen, not just the heat and the grime and all of that, but the sheer pressure and press of work would drive anyone crazy. Can I just put a counterpoint to this? You know, Jacques Pepin's autobiography mm-hmm. talks book. about wonderful book talks about cooking for the prime minister of France for years, and it didn't seem high pressure. It seemed a vocation. It was just a job. And when he was offered ostensibly a job at the White House under Kennedy, he said, "Well, I've already done that." And so it seemed that maybe the role of chef has gone from a job, which it was maybe in the fifties with Jacques Pepin in Paris to something more than a job? Is that a a change? That's true. And Jacques Pepin, he's a man with many other interests. He's a man who, in a certain sense, stumbled into the business of cooking, but would have been equally successful at pretty much anything he touched. He wasn't somebody who had, in that sense, the calling. And of course, we romantically and commercially make a great deal of that calling. We want our cooks, as we want our poets, to be specially chosen, and we want them to be uniquely driven. We reward that. It's part of the cult of Anthony Bourdain, whose writing I very much enjoy, but it's exactly because he presents himself as a kind of Byronic hero, a traveler, a man on the brink and on the edge that we're so drawn to his example. We want our chefs to be like that. What we don't want, or at least don't see as much, is the degree that's a real and not just a theatrical performance, it comes at an enormous cost for the people who are doing it. And I'm sure, Chris, that your experience very much parallels and uh, and mirrors mine. When I think about all of the wonderful cooks I've spent time with, I have to sadly say that there's scarcely one of them who, when they look back on their life, won't say to you, you know, I sometimes wish I had chosen another metier. The question is, does the job make the chef? Is it the job that does it? Or is does the job simply attract people prone to that sort of mental dissolution anyway? Yes, I think that's exactly the question. And that's just what I was trying to say, that I think it's one of those typical double whammies that we get in life. You wouldn't choose to become a professional chef unless you were an extremely driven person, person who sat right on the edge of obsessive compulsive disorder. You couldn't do the work otherwise. Nobody can sustain the press and pressure of a professional kitchen who doesn't have that kind of hyperdrive in her makeup. It's attractive to those kinds of people, but those kinds of people get almost no break. I mean, literally, and it's one of the things that this fine website, Chefs with Issues, emphasizes, is that one of the things that professional chefs need is time away, and they almost never get time away. And another thing they need is they need to be open about the nature of the pressures that go on. I've never known a great professional chef who didn't tell you by the time 2 a.m. rolled around a plan to do the same kind of work but in a saner environment. That sense that's shared among, I don't know who, gamblers, magicians, professional athletes, and chefs, that someday I'll get out of the life but you never quite do, that's a very particular kind of, what shall we call it, Byronic affliction. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm stuck in the life. So (laughs) We're lucky, Chris, because for us, the act of cooking isn't vocational. It's not the first thing we do. You are a, a writer and an editor. I'm a writer who likes to cook. But it's, once again, marks the greatest gulf that there is in any field in the world, and that's the gulf between the amateur who loves it and the professional who really does it. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know, the French existentialists were trying to find meaning in a meaningless world. For example, if words are randomly assigned to things, then things themselves have no meaning. Existence just gets more confusing from there. But I do suspect that Jean-Paul Sartre and Camus were not cooks. Anyone who enjoys preparing food isn't at all confused about the meaning of life. All a cook has to do is look around the table. There is nothing confusing about feeding friends and family. I cook, therefore I am. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also on our own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. 
Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 